And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Greetings from the near frontier. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool here on Blaze Podcast Network. My name is Cam Edwards. I am not joined by Miss E this week. She sends her regrets. Uh, honestly, it's been a busy week, and I think it's, you know, it, it, look, in all honesty, it's a stressful week. So, Miss um, E goes and gets a CT scan later this week, and on uh, Friday, we will find out uh, the results of this scan. It should be noted that this Friday is Friday the 12th, not Friday the 13th, so that is, uh, that's one thing we got going for us, but... You know, as much as we've been trying to uh, put it out of our minds, it, I think, is weighing on us. And I know that every time that we do a podcast, I always ask, how you doing? How you feeling? She's feeling okay. She is. But I I don't think she really wanted to be reminded tonight and to talk about it tonight. So I appreciate your understanding. And um, I promise that she'll be back very, very soon uh, with us here on 40 Acres and a Fool. But I, I do have some good news to tell you. So we don't have Miss E with us, but we do have a guest on this week's 40 Acres and a Fool. Um, for the first time ever in however many years we've been doing 40 Acres and a Fool, I don't even know how many episodes we're up to right now, we're going to have a telephone guest. Yeah, I'm excited about this. And we're going to be doing this more going forward. I bought a piece of equipment that allows me to do phone interviews. And I am so looking forward to getting the chance to talk with uh, some of the longtime listeners, some folks that I follow on Twitter in the ag world and in the world of homesteading and, you know, the semi sort of prepper mentality. There's, there's a lot of folks that I'm, I, I feel like I can now reach out to for knowledge and experience and guidance and hopefully just some fun stories along the way as well. So coming up a little bit later on in the program, you're going to hear from a woman named Hope Fleck, F-L-O-E-C-K, who I think think was the first person in agriculture who followed me on Twitter. At least the first one that I that I recognized was following me on Twitter. And it was kind of one of those moments of, oh, <laughs> you know, uh, OK, uh, I cannot uh, not that I not that I exaggerate or I'm grandiose or puff myself up in the first place. But like as soon as I knew there's a real farmer, you know, OK, that wasn't even an option. Right. Uh, I had to play it straight. I, I, I had to allow myself to be the fool that I am because I now had somebody following me that would call me out on my baloney if I started slinging some baloney around. And over the course of uh, Hope following me and me following Hope, I've just come to learn a little bit more about her. And she's just a, an amazing person, uh, has had a really interesting and varied career uh, in agriculture and, uh, and I'm looking forward to having a chance to uh, spend some time with you with her and, and you getting a chance to spend some time with Hope Fleck a little bit later on in the podcast as well. But to get you caught up uh, from the 40 acres, so I was away this past weekend. I had to go up to, I didn't have to, I got to go up to Ohio to the Buckeye Firearms Association, Buckeye Bash, and speak uh, to 400 or so Second Amendment advocates and really, really good people. This is the second time that they've invited me up. I think five years ago, I had the opportunity to go as well. And I, I love spending time up there. 
they're just a great, great group of uh, gun owners and Second Amendment supporters. And the drive from Central Virginia to Central Ohio is absolutely gorgeous. It is it is beautiful. Uh, basically, you hit Interstate 64, uh, and you just take that all the way through Western Virginia and in through West Virginia itself, and uh, and then you uh, cut off and and end up in uh, South what would that be Southeastern Ohio, and then you kind of make your way northeast up into uh, Columbus. So it's very hilly. It's very mountainous. You get to see the heart of the Appalachians. You get to see the foothills. It's and it was you know spring was springing up all over the place. It was it was really beautiful. And Sunday, I allowed myself a little bit of time on my way home uh, to make a little detour. It's the I believe the third time that I have kind of gone out of my way to go visit this place called W Hollow. And W Hollow is the home of a of an author named Jesse Stewart. Uh, Jesse Stewart passed away in the 1980s. He was born in 1906. I think he died in 1984. And the only reason I know about Jesse Stewart, very few people do these days, unfortunately. But when I was in ninth grade, my English teacher uh, assigned us one of his books. It's called The Thread That Runs So True. And it is a memoir that Jesse Stewart wrote, I believe in the 1950s, about his time as a teenager living in rural northeastern Kentucky. So this would have been late teens, early 1920s, right after World War I, basically. And Jesse Stewart went to a one-room schoolhouse. He eventually taught in a one-room schoolhouse as a junior in high school. So he went to the one-room schoolhouse through, I believe, eighth grade. Then he went to high school for ninth and 10th grade, had to walk three and a half, four miles to the high school uh, over these, you know, pretty intense ridges and down into the hollers in uh, northeastern Kentucky. Did that for two years and then took a year off and was a teacher in, in, in a rural school in rural Kentucky in the 1920s when automobiles were first starting to make their appearance. Uh, it was really, you know, a, a society in transition. And Jesse Stewart was an educator for quite a while. He eventually became the uh, superintendent of schools for rural Greenup County, again, when he was in his early 20s. Uh, taught high school in uh, nearby Portsmouth, Ohio, which was a, you know, a, a town of some significant size compared to uh, these little rural schoolhouses where, where he grew up and eventually made his way to college. He was the first in his family to go to college. His dad was a coal miner in the winter and would, was basically a subsistence farmer uh, during the summer. And he goes to Vanderbilt University. Uh, works his rear end off, has three jobs, uh, has one pair of, one, one change of clothes while he's in college. <laughs> you know, we're seeing all these uh, millennials today talking about, oh, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. Okay, but you're also kind of living this middle-class lifestyle in college when you, when you don't have any income whatsoever because you're going to college. Jesse Stewart went days without eating because he was paying his way through college. And and right before he was slated to graduate, there was a fire in his dorm. And this paper that he had been working on was lost. Uh, he ended up rewriting it and eventually expanded it. And it, it became his first book, which was also a memoir, at the ripe old age of, you know, 21 or 22, called Beyond Dark Hills. 
And it was the story of him growing up in northeastern Kentucky and eventually leaving. And I got to tell you, it is it's it's he's such a great writer. I mean, he just is able to evoke these incredible scenes when he's writing about, uh, you know, the, the land that he loved and the land that he grew up on. He was a poet as well. In fact, he was the poet laureate of Kentucky later on. His first uh, book of poetry was called Man with a Bulltongue Plow, and he wrote it uh, basically in the field. He wrote these poems on tobacco sacks, on tobacco leaves, because tobacco was the cash crop that he was growing. So anyway, um, on my 40th birthday, I got a wild hair and I drove to W. Hollow. Uh, when Jesse Stewart died, he, uh, he, he, he actually amassed quite a bit of land and the land that he you know, grew up on. Even though his dad was a subsistence farmer and had no money, Jesse sold pretty well, at least in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. So he was able to acquire 733 acres, or at, at least 733 acres that he left to the state of Ohio when he died. Uh, there is still a family parcel of land. I don't know how big it is. But the state of Kentucky has turned it into a nature preserve. So my 40th birthday, wild hair, drove up to uh, uh, Greenup County, North or Greenup County, Kentucky, and I and I went to W Hollow for the first time. And it was really cool walking around. It was really cool seeing these places that I had read about. Uh, what was not so cool is I ended up getting chiggers <laughs> and itched like crazy for days afterwards. Uh, then when the interannual meeting was in Louisville, Kentucky, I drove to Louisville and I made a quick little detour on my way to Louisville and stopped off at uh, W Hollow. Did not get any chiggers, did not get any bug bites. That was, that was a good, that was a nice trip. Uh, and so Sunday, I get down to W Hollow, and it's kind of overcast. And it's not really that warm. It's about 50 degrees or so. I'm like, okay, this is good. It's early spring. Shouldn't have to worry about any bugs. And I didn't. There were no mosquitoes. There were no, no seams, nothing like that, or so I thought. As I'm driving home, I spent about an hour and a half there. Actually got a little lost in the woods, but I found my way out. It was all good. And as I'm driving home, I I feel something on the back of my neck. And I, I reach back behind me and I pull off a tick. <sighs> I hate ticks. So I squished the tick, threw it out the window. Coming this later. I feel another one on me, pull it off, throw it out the window. Now I'm creeped out because if I found two, odds are that there's a third. <laughs> and there was. Uh, there was a third, there was a fourth, there was a fifth, there was a sixth, there was a seventh, there was an eighth tick on me. And unfortunately, I did not get all eight of them as I was driving home. There were a couple that latched on uh, that I had to wait until I got home because I couldn't reach them and I was the only one in the car. So... I, I don't know. I don't know if I did something to tick off the ghost of Jesse Stewart at some point in time, but uh, two thirds of the times that I've gone, I've, I've been I've been eaten by bugs to the point that it kind of makes me not want to return. So I, I love his writing. His farm is very very beautiful, but if you go there, um, immerse yourself. Just take a bath in DDT before you go because the bugs are fierce. Uh, there in W Hollow. Meanwhile, Miss E had to stay at home because uh, there was a wedding 
this past weekend. One of our friend's daughters was getting married, and I would have loved to have gone. Um, I'm not nearly as uh, crucial to the event as Miss E was because she uh, she helped cook uh, for the reception afterwards. So I had an excused absence because I was in Ohio, but Miss E did not. And she made chicken cacciatore uh, for 20 people. And from what she told me, about eight people actually had the chicken cacciatore. So she brought a lot of chicken cacciatore home. And and I, yeah, I shouldn't be surprised. I've been married to Miss E for 20 to almost 22 years now. It'll be 22 years this year. And I've been eating her food officially for 22 years because we're now 22 years after she moved to Oklahoma. And so I should not be surprised by the fact that she takes food that I never liked and makes it delicious. But that's what she did with chicken cacciatore. I have never liked chicken cacciatore. I've never liked it. To me, the meat is always stringy. It's bony. If you've never had chicken cacciatore, it's basically, as, as Missy describes it, it is a, uh, it's an Italian hunter's stew. And so it is chicken thighs that have been basically, uh, you know, slow cooked uh, along in sort of a, you know, tomatoey broth with uh, different kinds of veggies. Miss E threw some uh, really good mushrooms in there. I think some porcini mushrooms and some uh, portobello mushrooms. And whatever she did to the chicken thighs, it was awesome. One huge thing she did was she actually took them off the bone. And every chicken cacciatore I've had, the chicken has bones on it. So you got this stringy, bony chicken thing floating in, you know, soup. And I, I, I don't like it. But I like this very, very much. So I even told her, I said, this is... This has to be now be on the rotation for the uh, the winter soup and stew menu. Uh, she agreed. The kids agreed as well. So the chicken cacciatore was a was a huge hit for Missy, e, and I think the wedding went off without a hitch as well, which is always a good thing. So we've still got some emails I want to get to and a couple of other items of note, but I do want to share with you the uh, conversation that I had with Hope Fleck. Uh, who, as I mentioned, was the first ag person that I'm aware of to, uh, to follow me on Twitter and, uh, and somebody who has just been uh, an inspiration and a really cool person to get to know uh, over the past uh, several months now. So here is the very first phone interview, long-distance interview here on 40 Acres and a Fool. Hi, Kim. Thanks for uh, asking me to do this. And I I did not know that I was the first person in ag to follow you. That's, that's pretty awesome. I didn't realize that. I, I think that you were, because at least you were the one that I, I first noticed and went, uh-oh. <laughs> There's somebody who really knows what they're talking about and what they're doing following me now. Uh, and it was a little intimidating, but um, but but it's been so cool. And, and, and you know, your encouragement um, and, you know, just the, the, the fact that you like the podcast and you get something out of it makes me feel really good. Well, I, you know, it's kind of fun, you know, to, to relate to people in different areas of the country and different, um, you know, we're all working in, in what we kind of feel passionate about. And so there's always those, those little golden strings, I call them, of, of relationships and, and commonalities that we have if we dig a little bit. And so it's fun to find those with people. And I think that where I, I personally enjoy the relations work that I've done over the years. So it's, it's just kind of a natural thing for me to want to, you know, what is it that we can relate to? What's the common thread? 
Absolutely. And, you know, and, and if so in following you, like that kind of exposed me to ag Twitter, which is this really cool little community. Uh, it actually reminds me a lot of the community we have around a Cayman company and this, you know, when I first uh, got online back in the 90s, I mean, Missy and I met online and it, you know, not everybody was, was on the Internet. So it was easy to talk to people. It wasn't, you know, the trolling and the just, you know, name calling that we see today. And that ag Twitter kind of reminds me of that that golden age where you actually have people having real conversations, people get along, people are close to one another. Um, and it's this genuine community that's that, 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 that exists primarily in this digital space. Yeah. It's, the ad community is what brought me online, um, to be honest with you. So I, you know, I wasn't farming or ranching anymore, but I wanted to keep connected. I, I kept having this pull, this desire to want to be, involved, engaged. And when I found Ag Twitter, um, that's what really drew me to that because I felt like I had um, a home online, so to speak, uh, a community that I related to uh, in a lot of ways. And it wasn't necessarily about work or, or you know, really hard issues all the time, but it was talking about, you know, things that we deal with day to day and all of us you know, not, not just ad communities. Suddenly we find that these are all things that, you know, issues that we all work through in life. So yeah, it's a great community. I love the interaction and that's, that's why I wanted to be a part of it um, was to learn and interact with folks and learn what they do in, in their life and their sector in ag. Um, and it gave me that. And it was, it's been very fulfilling and I've had friends that have taken it to the next level um, and and made it part of their business, part of their communications and, and media. So it's been a really neat thing to watch grow and develop. Um, and of course, you always have those interactions out there that aren't as positive as you'd like to see. Right. But it, that's okay, though. We, we can learn how to deal with those, you know. Absolutely. You know, and it's interesting, too, because, I mean, for pretty much, you know, the entirety of of agriculture's existence, um, it, you know, one of the I think the big com not not complaints, but one of the drawbacks for for some people is the loneliness. Right. I mean, the isolation. You're out there in the middle of nowhere, depending on the size of your farm. You may have neighbors that uh, you can see on a regular basis. You might not. Um, but but having this online community, I, I, I think really, you know, this is something like it's, it really is a unique time in history, I think, for farmers, because now it's so much easier for them to communicate with each other in a way that just wasn't even possible, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. And so maybe you didn't get to do that except for every once in a while, leaning on the back of the tailgate, um, talking to somebody at the end of the day, mm -hmm. you know, or, um, you know, maybe at one of these meetings that takes place maybe once a year. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities there and, and people are taking advantage of those opportunities to communicate their, their struggles, their questions, their ideas, uh, their growth ideas and, uh, expansion and, or maybe it's not expansion. Maybe it's, dealing with a difficult time and um, talking to each other about how do we handle this? How do we cut costs? How do we make our way through this difficult situation? Has anybody else been through this? And, it, and so it's, you know, it's not just about, you know, fixing a piece of equipment, which happens often, mm -hmm. but it's about um, these relationships that 
build into a support system and it just happens sort of naturally, um, which is great. And, you know, there's times that I find myself just spending time connecting people and helping them network uh, so that they find the right connections to talk about the things that they need to talk about. You know, I, by no means am I an expert in, in anything. I feel like sometimes the jack of all trades sometimes, but I certainly can help people network and get them connected with the right people. So what that has led to is things like these little meetings that are social meetings, social gatherings of folks from this, this ag of online community. Um, and I think it's fantastic. Um, it's not a meeting. It's not a business meeting. It's uh, these social gatherings to um, connect with each other in person and um, offer up support and, and have a good uh, time of fellowship together, I think. That's awesome. It's just an interesting thing. Yes, it is. It is. It is awesome. I love seeing that. (laughs) I do too. I mean, because again, using the idea, just the idea of using that digital community to foster that real physical community, because I, I do believe that, you know, as great as it is that we can talk to people, you and I, and never having met one another can have this conversation today. You know, we are losing those real physical ties to to, to community as well. And so to, to actually use the digital space to foster that that real life relationship, I, I think that's uh, that that is in the in the truest sense of the word, uh, an awesome thing. Uh, you know, and and you talk about you not really feeling like an expert uh, in any one subject matter, but, you've led, it seems to me like you've led a really interesting life. I want to get into your background. You said when you got online and in the, in the social media world, you weren't actively farming or ranching, which means at some point in your life you were right. So what's your background? What's your background? Hope. Okay. So, um, I can consider myself a farm kid, um, by every stretch of the words. Um, I grew up in East Texas, uh, North of Dallas, Fort Worth upon an area uh, close to Lake Texoma, well, on Lake Texoma and on uh, Red River that runs through it, and that's between uh, Texas and Oklahoma. Um, so the Walnut Bend area uh, and um, uh, Gordonville and, and um, areas along, along the river there okay. so, and south. And so at one point, my my dad, you know, I was working with my dad and grew up working with my dad for my dad. And, um, you know, he at one time uh, had about 4,000 acres in uh, production. Wow. And uh, that's row crop and um, uh, hay or grazing. So um, that was all, um, you know, he, he built that up himself. His dad was also a farmer. Um, but he at a very young age, uh, took over, uh, the farming operations and, and really made it his own and, uh, and grew it. So we were doing peanuts and, and, uh, wheat and what we called Milo, which is referred to as grain sorghum now. And, uh, at that time, corn was not, um, really production, um, prime for that area. And, and things like uh, hay grazer and, and coastal, um, uh, Bermuda coastal hay. Okay. So, and, and raising cattle and, and hogs at one time. 
and uh, doing some things with uh, breeding programs with horses and and developing um, working ranch horses. So wow, yeah, we we did a lot, and and Dad, fortunately, he made it through the farm crisis in the eighties. It was really really tough, really tight, and um, you know I I can't explain to folks really the depth of how drastic it is to cut back and um man you just you reel everything in uh the community starts sort of encircling each other and trying to help each other through the time and mm-hmm. it was a it, it was a drastic uh stressful time for everybody every single farmer and a lot of farmers didn't didn't continue farming during that time yeah. so so uh, he cut back on his operations uh, drastically over about a 20-year period, um, just incrementally uh, pulling back from things. Okay. And he had to. And and that was sort of the smart thing to do to leave him where he was in a situation financially that he, he wasn't, um, you know, having to foreclose on the farm or, or anything like that. Right. So making some tough business decisions and as a family, you know, working through that and the stress of all of those things. So living through that, um, knowing the stress and, and the anxiety of those things and, you know, sort of led my thoughts and how I approached um, business and helping people out in your community. And I watched a lot of that going on. I watched my mom do a lot of those things and it sort of impacted my thoughts on, how agriculture and the community and doing good in the world sort of tied together. Um, and so I, I left, I left home and which my parents completely supported. They wanted to see me go off to college. And Mm -hmm. so they supported me to go to Texas tech university in West Texas. And, um, which has been in the, the news a lot here lately with basketball. <laughs> right, I was so, going to say, uh, congratulations on getting to the championship game. <laughs> right, right, so close. So, but uh, so so close. Yeah. Great group of guys and a great coach there. So, but yeah, I, I went and studied uh, agricultural economics and uh, got two degrees from Texas Tech University and worked for the university in research uh, and also uh, developing a new uh, graduate program. Uh, along with them while I was there. So um, really fun experience. Absolutely. And then you went from, we were talking offline uh, earlier, and you you worked for this nonprofit uh, group that seemed to be doing some pretty incredible things. And like right in that wheelhouse that you were talking about, about, you know, ag in the community. Yeah. And for me, um, it was was such an interesting um, aspect. It brought together you know, the ideas that I had in my own mind of, okay, um, the ag community is such a strong, faithful community and they, they're always, uh, quick to help out in, in whenever there's a community need. And, and I saw that happening with the project here in, in West Texas, where there was an opportunity to build a nonprofit manufacturing facility. And the concept was to take unmarketable uh, vegetables and grains um, that were not aesthetically uh, pleasing to, you know, consumers Mm -hmm. in in stores. Um, So 
So you had, uh, you know, blemished produce or, um, for example, rice that uh, had a lot of broken kernels in it. So that's difficult for a manufacturer, food manufacturer, to put in to their, you know, box convenience foods because right. of aesthetically it, it, it's it doesn't sell fine to eat. quite as well. Perfectly fine to eat. All of these things are perfectly fine to eat and uh, have nutritional value, and each are selected for their nutritional contribution to a to a blend of foods, and that was the the concept. So, taking you know, as as stewards, as agriculturalists, and being stewards of of our production, what could we do with our abundance uh, to help others? And that was the concept. Uh, and so, it was fun to be involved from the you know, the beginning of concept idea and fundraising. And then I had an opportunity to go to work for them and almost 20 years working with them. And so basically what that led to was working with the ag community and commodity groups and putting together business plans that would work so that we could deliver um, nutritional food into areas of need. And so that was here at home through food banks. But it is also uh, in other projects around the world where nutrition was concerned, um, drastic cases of, of starvation prevention, um, and also disaster response. And uh, very interesting work and led to some relationships uh, you know, all around the world uh, and also all over the country. And one single thread that I can say is that there were always people from the agricultural community involved uh, in what we were doing. And that was always greatly appreciated um, because they, they're leaders in their communities. They bring along the other leaders in their community and members of the community. You know, and that's something I could talk with you, by the way, for an hour. <laughs> so uh, we're going to have to have you back on uh, at some point because we're not going to get to everything that I want to talk about. But, you know, you talk about these folks who really are leaders in their community and they're some of the best people that you'll ever meet. Um, and it seems to me like not just agriculture, but rural America these days really does get a bad rap. There was a moment and it was probably it was about six years ago, actually, because I remember the Super Bowl in 2013 was the year that the uh, the Dodge had the Year of the Farmer commercial, right? And it was uh-huh, just a celebration right. of the farmer. I remember that distinctly because we had just moved uh, to our small farm. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. We are no longer in the Year of the Farmer uh, culturally, right? I mean, it really seems like, right. like like rural America is just getting a really bad rap. Uh, and, and even, you know, this is not one political party or another because I see people who are conservatives who say, oh, these small towns, they're dying off. Why are we trying to save them? Everybody should just move to these, uh, you know, vibrant cities and, 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 and let's just turn, you know, most of the country into this empty space. Um, what, what do you think ag's response is to this? Because, again, it's not necessarily a food issue or a, or a production issue. It's, it, it's it's almost a cultural issue. It's a way of life issue. It's it's being told that your way of life shouldn't exist anymore. Well, I I think um, the agricultural community, in some ways, you know, whether they they necessarily want to expose that vulnerability or not, um, you know, it's it's you know, it's a basic human nature to to react in such a way that it's hurtful. 
um, just in a very basic way to explain it, it's, it's hurtful to be told that you're not uh, relevant. Mm-hmm. And um, from my perspective, from from viewing folks, um, I don't think that's necessarily a good good way to approach this. Um, and they are the a lot of times the lifeblood of of those communities. Um, if they're doing well, uh, the community thrives because um, they share in their abundance. So they're doing business in town. They're employing people. Um, there's flow of commerce. And um, they bring a lot of good into the community. They inspire a lot of good into these small communities. Um, we, If we go back and look at history, you know, there's a lot of folks that we all look up to that uh, originated from these little tiny small towns um, that right. bring a level of of genuineness, um, brilliance, and talent, and they were uh, a product of these communities. So I, I don't think it's fair to say that these communities are irrelevant and that we should not uh, try to to support them. I think they. I think they are a positive contribution to our, our larger society. And um, we don't want to lose that. From someone that worked in the humanitarian aid, uh, thinking about development and what, what countries struggle through, mm-hmm. um, we know that, that having these large um, economic centers are, are obviously important. Um, but it's also important for the outlying communities in agriculture to be strong and to have a connection back to these other larger economic centers. Um, and it's important for them to exist. You, you, you really don't want these large gaps of, uh, you know, you get into infrastructure and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it, for me, I, I start looking at very serious fundamental issues that we might drag ourselves into that would have much longer impacts on our society that aren't positive. Um, and, and so I think hanging on to our smaller communities are, is very important. And I think there's a, some good bones to our society that are, that are built there, um, pillars that are built there. I could not agree more. In fact, I, I was driving from my place in uh, Virginia up to Ohio this past weekend, and I drove through a little town called Alta Vista, Virginia. And there it is, you know, on the edge of town. It's the sign, uh, Charlie Manuel, uh, manager of the World Series champion, you know, Philadelphia Phillies, uh, you know, grew up in Alta Vista. And every small town has that. I remember growing up in Oklahoma, every time we'd drive on uh, I-40 out towards Henrietta, you'd see the sign, home of Troy Aikman. And and you're right. These small towns do have a vibrancy that I think is often ignored uh, because, you know, the, the media and cultural centers um, don't spend a lot of time there. Uh, and unfortunately, oh, we're out of time here. But will you come back at some point? Because, like I said, I have so many more questions. I just don't have time to ask them anymore. I would definitely love to come back and, and visit on a variety of topics. Like I said, I'm not an expert in any of them, but I, I certainly can give an opinion. Well, I appreciate you getting, uh, you, you letting us get a, a chance to know you a little bit better. If folks want to follow you on Twitter uh, or social media, where can they find you? 
So I'm on just uh, several platforms. I'm on uh, Twitter, obviously. So Hope Fleck, and that's H-O-P-E-F-L-O-E-C-K. Um, and also on Instagram uh, by the same handle and uh, Facebook. And um, those are the best places uh, to find me. So I love interacting with people and networking. So anybody that wants to give a shout out or ask a question, uh, absolutely. Hope, thank you so much for coming on the program today. It was a real pleasure, and I hope we get a chance to do this again soon. Uh, Thank you so much, Cam, and best wishes to Miss C. Thank you so much. Hope Fleck with us here on 40 Acres and a Fool. So there you go. I really appreciate Hope joining us. That was really, really cool and exciting. I'm looking forward to having her back and doing more interviews. In fact, if you uh, know anybody that you think we should be talking to here on 40 Acres and a Fool, send me an email. Let me know. The email address is 40acrefool at gmail.com. have a couple of emails to get to, actually, before we have to get out of here. Uh, Dustin writes in from the uh, Ohio State Trappers Association. That's pretty awesome. Uh, it says, Cam, I heard you talk about blueberries on the podcast, and I was reminded of another podcast I listened to that had a good show on growing them and where to get more information on them. This is from the farmersgrove.com. Uh, growing blueberries with a regenerative permaculture slant. Or maybe maybe just a regenerative permaculture. <laughs> I'm trying to look at the link here and decipher what the, uh, what the title is. Uh, Dustin, I appreciate that very much. I will check that out and... You know, I, I mean, I'm not going to tell you specifically to go listen to other podcasts, but it sounds like it would be an interesting one, and I appreciate Dustin uh, sharing that. Greg, our llama-loving buddy down in North Carolina, checking in as well uh, from Simplicity Llamas. Uh, they are on Facebook, by the way, Llamas in Mayberry, which is a great name. He says, I haven't figured out Instagram yet. I leave the Instagram to Missy. I, I do. I I don't dislike it. I don't know. Maybe it's just my my anti-Facebook, anti-Zuckerberg bias because Facebook owns Instagram. But for whatever reason, I I have a really good time and I enjoy seeing other people's pictures. I just can never remember to actually post any pictures on Instagram. So I'm usually on Twitter at Cam Edwards, but uh, you can find Greg there on Facebook at Llamas in Mayberry. Uh, Greg writing in to request a Kraken hat, the Twisted Kraken hat, the you know, the big octopus hat that Missy uh, crochets, almost said macrame's crochets, uh, for one of Greg's llamas. So, Greg, I'm going to send you this information in an email as well, but just so everybody's on the same page here, Missy has accepted uh, your request slash challenge, and she is willing to make a twisted Kraken hat for your llama. So, I need the following information, my friend. Uh, colors. I think, Greg, you had mentioned specifically you saw the uh, Kraken hat in pink and gray. So if you would like that color scheme for your llamas, let, let me know. Um, Missy also wants to know how many hats you need slash want. Because I know that you have more than one llama. So let's not go crazy here. Let, let's not ask for like 10. But if you wanted two or three uh, Twisted Kraken hats, Missy can turn them out pretty quickly. So uh, let me know how many it is that you're looking for and uh, and I appreciate the interest and you darn well better share pictures of your llamas in Missy's creations once they uh, once they're there and on the llamas heads by the way you do know it's getting towards summer in North Carolina right I mean I don't think these llamas are really going to need 
Well, they're not going to need the hat to begin with, but uh, I don't know how well that's going to work out in like, you know, July and August there in North Carolina, but I guess we'll see. So, Greg, appreciate you writing in. I uh, appreciate everybody checking in on the uh, social medias. As I mentioned to begin this program, this is it's kind of a stressful week for us. Um, and the next time you hear a podcast, we will be able to give you some hopefully good results. And the good results are that the chemo is still working that the tumors haven't gotten any bigger, that we can keep doing this. Because as crummy as it is for Miss E to feel sick one week a month, this is the devil we know. And the devil we know, we can deal with. Um, What happens if the chemo is not working? What happens if we have to try something new? That's the devil we don't. And I hope that we can keep that devil at the door for a few more months. So please keep Missy in your thoughts and your prayers that we get good news on Friday. And if we don't, uh, please pray for us to find the strength and the courage to deal with that devil that we don't. In the meantime, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot, and make stuff. And we'll see you here soon with another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool on Blaze Podcast Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.